In every podcast, there is a chosen episode. It alone will discuss the similarities in themes, story, and writing between Supernatural and Buffy, the Vampire Slayer. Today we have a very special episode for you. We are going to discuss Buffy Natural. It's a crossover. And a special episode requires a special guest. We are so excited to welcome Simone. Let's get this show on the road, Scooby Gang. Simone, welcome to Carrying Wayward. Simone is a longtime follower of the podcast. She's a curator and she manages a contemporary art gallery in Toronto. Today she'll be bringing along her background in the film studies to our discussion of Buffy. Hey guys, so thank you so much for having me. I haven't been in the Supernatural fandom for very long, but I'm a huge original Buffy fan. I'm also a huge film nerd, so I'm so excited to have the opportunity to join you guys for this special episode. I could talk for hours about Buffy and why it's such a seminal TV series. You know, as someone who always likes to properly cite my sources, I did want to mention off the top that uh, I'm going to be drawing on some of the concepts from our Fields book, Buffy, Myth, Morality, and Metaphor, which I cannot recommend enough. So whether you're a, a Buffy fan or interested in learning more about metaphors, narrative structure, or visual storytelling, this is a great book. I've already added the book to my Christmas list. And I also just think it's really interesting to mention real quick that like, as you were giving your intro there, it occurred to me, like, I consider myself fairly new to the supernatural fandom, given its lengthy lifespan and how much of it I've seen slash been a part of it. But also, the show I had before this that led me to even consider Supernatural was Buffy. I watched Buffy, obviously, because Buffy was out before Supernatural, just a quick historical like context. At the very beginning, Eric, Eric Kripke had said that he didn't want to introduce vampires specifically in order to bypass like the Buffy-Supernatural comparisons. He didn't want that. And that's why the stake to the heart doesn't work in Supernatural. And they make, they quote unquote, make fun of it in the very first episode. <clears throat> misogyny. Just to kind of situate how this episode kind of came to be, uh, Simone, you're the one who reached out to us with this idea and we absolutely loved it. We loved your concept so much that we decided to split it into two episodes, but that's going to be for another day. I should also mention that you were the one who sent us the Buffy voicemail uh, that we loved and that people have been talking about ever since they heard it. Do we want to start with a little bit of like, everybody can kind of go around sharing a little bit about your experience with Buffy and where we find that Buffy and Supernatural kind of like intersect? I watched Buffy since it first aired in 1997. I watched it live on like a crappy little tube TV and I stayed with it straight until the series finale. And I even bothered schlepping myself over to Angel Theories for its final season because Spike, my favorite, such a problematic fave, but we love him. We love a problematic fave. At the time, I would save up all my money from my like part-time high school job, and I got all the DVDs, and I watch it all the time. Actually, even during the pandemic, I finally convinced a friend of mine who has been putting off trying to watch Buffy for like 20 years to do a rewatch with me, and it was awesome until we got to the final season, season seven, while we were still in lockdown here in Toronto, and it was just a little too close to home. Oh, damn. I love that we can get so much from these like TV shows from that era. I know that whenever I watch Buffy now, I like, I feel so, I feel more confident in my day-to-day life, which, you know, is just kind of a, again, I have a lot of thoughts about uh, the creation of Buffy and like the, the making of, but it just, it makes me feel good. I really enjoy watching it. So yeah, I feel seen, I feel heard. I watched it a little bit when I was younger, but I didn't see all the seasons at the time. I was watching a French dub of it because I watched French TV at the time. I used to watch it with my mom and my sister, and that was like our our thing. I think it played on like Thursday or Friday evenings, like quote unquote late. <laughs> the last thing that I want to say about that is that when Supernatural ended, one of the first series that I went back to after that, be, to heal my broken heart was Buffy. I love that. Buffy was a show that my cousin got me into. This cousin was the same one who got me into a lot of things I'm into now. My first Game Boy came from her. She had like episodes on tape she'd recorded. So I saw some of like the best ofs and her favorites out of order. 
And it was years later that I finally watched the whole series. I then did a rewatch with the wife and she got to watch it for the first time herself. And we actually started a rewatch together again at some point during the pandemic. Okay, so let's move on to talk about the horror genre a little bit, especially like how it's used in Buffy, how it's used in Supernatural. And just again, keeping in mind that like Eric Kripke really wanted to differentiate Supernatural from Buffy specifically. So in my my voicemail about Buffy, you know, I did talk about how Buffy's legacy, so the way it approaches narrative and monsters as metaphors is kind of woven into the DNA of Supernatural. Um, But I think where the two series really intersect the most is what I call kind of it's it's postmodern approach to the horror genres. So Mary, you talked in an earlier episode of Caring Wayward, you defined postmodernism beautifully. Thank you. Thank you very much. So what I mean by that is that both shows kind of play with genre hybridity. So that's the kind of blending of themes, elements, and aesthetics from two or more genres in a way that kind of subverts the traditional tropes, but also is very self-aware. So we can see that kind of happening both in Buffy and in Supernatural. And since we're only kind of talking about the first five seasons under Kripke, you know, you can really see that kind of the way that they're respectively using horror tropes, its conventions, its staging, its aesthetics, um, but then always kind of just remixing them a little bit. Exactly. With varying levels of efficiency and success. Yeah, success. Um, or lack thereof. Yeah, there you go. In general, when I think back specifically about that, when it comes to Buffy and Supernatural, I think that Buffy, and not to like make this like a competition between the two shows, because I don't think that that's what this is about, but I find that Buffy is just so much more efficient at doing this and is able to to give the audience some really big emotions in a much more sophisticated way than Supernatural. So you talk about obviously how they are taking different approaches, but the very similar concepts, the idea of the horror genre. And I feel like Buffy dips into the horror genre not for the scary aspect but for the like storytelling and the 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 drive so that it's not always that every creature is going to be scary but when something is scary they pull the right pieces whereas supernatural i feel like at least where we are right now tries more often to pull the scary in and sometimes that's the detriment of the message trying to get across um, which also goes to show that when both shows do hybridize their genres and pick up another subgenre for an episode or for an arc, they find amazing success usually. Like I think I have gone on a tangent at least once every like other recording about some of like the weirder Buffy episodes that like break the norms, uh, everything from silence to the musical to Dracula. Dracula, yes. Uh, even just the memory wipe episode, which is one of my favorites. Tabula Rasta, yes. Yes. Oh my God. Also a great title. Again, using good titles here. It's those moments where they dip into other genres or other tropes that allow them to play in spaces they wouldn't normally otherwise play in and then pull you back into their reality that does such good work. I wanted to flag the word postmodern here for those that may not be aware. And I'm sorry if I'm explaining it. Uh, The horror genre is really about shedding light on existential horror, like lived experience. And it's really about personifying internal struggles, you know, so think about haunted houses. That's about disruptions and conflict in the domestic space because it's always in a house. Um, And so I think Kripke is very aware of how genre operates in that space. And obviously Whedon was as well. But I think that's where Buffy as the progenitor for Supernatural becomes, you know, just the kind of obvious linkage because they're both kind of using the kind of the core concept, the core modus operandi of horror Uh, in a slightly different way. And and it's apples and oranges, but you can still see the linkages. 
I also love that the different choices and characters, right, that were made to create this world. I, in your voicemail, I remember you specifically asking the the difference between Buffy and Dean after they come back from hell and the difference in their experiences. And I think that at their core, Dean and Buffy are the same character in a different font to use fandom speak. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, this, this choice of this young teenage girl who is battling these monsters is very striking, especially when you c contrast that with like Sam and Dean who are like, you know, they're drifters. They live in motel rooms. They don't, they, they live out of their car. So it's, they're, 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 they basically come from two different worlds. And I think that especially for Buffy, like that difference between like who she is on the outside and who she is on the inside is so, 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 so different. It's so big. It's such a big difference. Buffy and like, even, you know, this town of Sunnydale is used as an important metaphor for Buffy's story because you have this conflict between expectations and reality and having to balance the two identities. Interestingly enough, too much to unpack here, but the boys, as you know, very much occupying a kind of working class blue collar space, also being male subjects, they're rarely ever confronted with societal expectations. That's very true. The contrast is so obvious when you put it together. Like, to put a really blunt one on the table, both protagonists have to deal with a single parent who is eventually taken from them and how living with that parent works out. Like, we see Sam's journey from being a kid who learns that what his father really does to how Dean was mistreated and the results of this and eventually losing their father. Whereas, I mean... Buffy's mother is one of the most incredible, well-written mothers on television, in my opinion. And, like, when they finally get break that barrier of, like, this is what I do, Mom. This is what I've been doing all these nights. Yes, there's, like, the, the, the like, shock. But eventually there's, like, a level of acceptance <laughs> that is so, like, unexpected for that kind of genre. Like, it feels like such a trope in that genre that to break it like that feels so interesting. And even the way they take her from Buffy is so different than what you'd expect. Uh, versus whereas Supernatural kind of does it a lot more on the way you'd expect them to lose John. Joyce is used a lot as um, a lot as just generally a conflict vending machine. Again, just like this idea of uh, domestic conflict also being something that the Slayer has to contend with versus simply just the Supernatural. I also find that Joyce acts like a, an enforcer of certain societal expectations, particularly when it comes to femininity. And I will also argue heterosexuality. Absolutely. Those societal expectations also come with the fact that Buffy's true identity is trying to live her life as a normal human and is also the slayer. There's a conflict, whereas I feel like Sam and Dean, their actual life is hunting demons and they have to put on the disguise of being normal to get through the day-to-day -day. it's kind of the reverse it's the you know the batman versus superman superman dresses as clark kent bruce wayne dresses like batman there's a really salient case to be made for buffy's slayer persona as kind of her alter ego kind of a la superhero that she has to protect and keep secret uh versus the boys not so much they just kind of they already operate in this very kind of interstitial space they're you know they still operate vis-a-vis different aliases but there isn't again that balance the most we see is maybe sam wanting to get out of the life one is really making the, the the supernatural life their secondary life and trying to continue with their primary life where which is kind of where sam starts but already by season three four five we've kind of left that behind and now they are very much hunters first and any formality of a normal life is just a disguise to get by the day by day I think it's also the fact that like the boys don't have any social connections that aren't related to hunting. And so in those cases, you don't really have a persona to uphold or to defend or anything like that. You can just, because imagine Buffy, if she wasn't going to high school, it would be a completely different show. Well, I mean, we, we see that in the, uh, one of the alternate timeline episodes with when, when they returned to evil lesbian Willow before she came out. The wish first. Yeah, there you go. It's where we meet Anya. Again, those amazing moments. Of like, what a great episode. Also, it introduces another, like, series-long character. 
But there's also something really interesting thematically that gets teased out with, you know, Buffy's desire to be a normal girl, right? In one sense, like her alter ego is the slayer and chosen one, ostensibly prevents her from leading this kind of normal girl life that she wants, that's always kind of textually and woven throughout the entire series. Um, But then at the same time, it's that exceptionalism as the chosen one that allows her to, you know, keep everyone in Sunnydale safe and kind of keep the supernatural at bay. So it's kind of this, this interesting tension, which, you know, is the reason why Buffy, since it's airing, has kind of become the template for kind of the powerful woman trope, right? Is having that little bit of nuance and tension where she can exist in a dualistic space. So she can exist in dualistic spaces, but she has a really hard time working through relationships where she can't be her full self at the same time. Whereas the boys don't really have a problem with that. You know, they can totally be somebody else for a second. And you don't, you don't see that conflict as much as you do with Buffy because she, she's trying to really connect with the other person, but she feels like she can't because of, of not being able to be her full self. And oh my God, let me say how hard it is to have this conversation without talking past season five. Oh my God. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's totally fine. I just, you know, can we revisit this like season oh, for sure. 10? <laughs> like, I'm thinking specifically about season eight right now. And I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> okay. Same, same girl. Same. Now I'm excited to get there and be like, what was the connection? What am I missing? <laughs> Maybe there will be a dog involved. Also, Drew, just for you, after season five, you will be gifted the opportunity to see all of your favorite, almost all of your favorite actors from Buffy appearing, doing guest spots in Supernatural. I mean, I know I know, I have Felicia Day, so I'm very excited for that one already, but everyone else, even better. I won't spoil it, but you got a whole bunch and it's going to be iconic Please, please, please let me in on that episode. Uh, something Dr. Phil, please. Booked. <laughs> We've had one crossover actor so far. What's her name? The blonde who ends up dating Spike for a while, uh, who's one of Buffy's classmates at he turns. She's so good. Harmony. I always want to say charisma because it's the other actress's na- actual name. Also, you guys had the actor who played Ash was uh, a vampire in... Uh, the season premiere. And Rob Benedict also played a, a vampire on Buffy. Four, absolutely. He was one of Adam's vampire minions. Yes, there you go. So one thing that I am so excited to get to is to talk about the monsters in both series. I mean, we've talked a lot uh, on on Caring Weward about like vampires and werewolves and like what they mean. And we've talked also a little bit, we haven't talked about zombies yet, but I have my, I, I anyway, I have a lot of thoughts about zombies. Where do we start? <laughs> there was something that I did want to flag here for you guys that was really interesting. So according to Whedon, uh, vampires are incapable of moral development, right? So Buffy, the core metaphor, or sorry, the core metaphor that aligns it is it's the coming of age story. Vampires are incapable of moral development. They are stuck in time, right? They don't age. They can never grow up. So if the whole series is an exploration of like the horrors of growing up, then it makes, then it's like so perfect. It's so chef's kiss that Buffy is a slayer, slays vampires, things that can't grow up as a metaphor for her own path to adulthood. Oh, damn. Well, it's making me think, okay, so do we mean this in the sense of like that, you know, the slaying is basically an act of like leaving the people behind that she is outgrowing or is it killing or leaving behind the parts of herself that she's outgrowing? And perhaps it's a little bit of both. In my opinion, it's very much manifold. So Whedon was deliberately using the kind of monster of the week to kind of tease out conflicts that, you know, the usual coming of age thing. So like, let's look back to season one, you know, the witch we have out of sight, out of mind where the girl feels ignored and becomes invisible. Right. We have 
you know, we have Oz becoming a werewolf, which is a metaphor for puberty. We have Beauty and the Beast, which is, a, you know, a metaphor for domestic partner abuse. Oh my God, like the list goes on, like everything, because the core thing, right, is like that every monster that Buffy and the Scoobies have to face is always brought back to a kind of internal conflict. You know, maybe we shouldn't have started with vampires because, you know, it's such a big thing. But, um, Right, because you have you have the idea of you know vampires always being intrinsically sexually coded, dating back to Bram Stoker's Dracula. Shout out to Carmela, like the ultimate vampire queen, right? You know, our, our queer icon for years, and you know, again, this idea of of transgression. Right? So it becomes really interesting because she, you know, Buffy does slay a whole bunch of demons, but at the end of the day, she's not Buffy the Demon Slayer; she's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And so that becomes important. And then also we have, as a coming-of-age story, we have the fact that her sexual explorations are coded onto her two primary love interests that are vampires. Like, again, going back to our Carrying Wayward, we we often do in our story breakdown of every episode, it's usually very apparent when the monster of the week is designed to mirror a situation that is going on and to very, very clearly play the metaphor. But to have something in, to, but Supernatural doesn't really have, at least in seasons one through five, the equivalence of vampires and Buffy that play this longer role in their metaphor. Yes, they do from time to time have a very like, here's this very specific instance of a vampire doing a very specific thing. And we can then draw the parallels to whatever bullshit Xander's up to this week for some reason. Uh, but overarchingly, you have, like you pointed out, these common codings for vampires that are then used to help us explore generally Buffy and how she is growing as a character. So we kind of have this longer arc going on. And I'm again, now that I'm saying it, I'm curious if demons will start to fill that role more and more as the seasons go on, as they kind of starting to. But then in Carrying Wayward Rain, will we get the same thing with uh, Angels and Supernatural? It's also worth noting that within Buffy's lore, the Slayer comes of age around the age of 15, which coincides with puberty. And so that makes the importance that vampires play, and especially if we think about Buffy as a as an exploration of coming of age and feminine identity, uh, then that becomes also very interesting and notable. Then obviously there's like witchcraft as a metaphor for uh, exploring themes of feminine identity and sexuality. We also have like vampirism and abusive magic as parallels for addiction. Absolutely. Um, I also really love the metaphor. I didn't like how it was done, but I like the metaphor of the initiative as science versus nature and humans inability to control the unknown. We will get a similar thing to this in Supernatural at some point, which is very exciting. There's a horror video game that I think when we get there in our show, I'll bring up more that does a very amazing four-way cross-reference metaphor of the military complex, science, religious zealots, and uh, government conspiracies all at once around one central like thought process. Can't wait till season seven. <laughs> We're getting a crossover with Dead Space. I can't wait. You, you know, you've mentioned uh, Carmilla. I know that we've talked again on the podcast a lot about um, the queerness that's associated with vampires on uh, Supernatural. And I think for Buffy, it's a little bit different. Like the 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 coding isn't so much immediately queer, although it can be as it is uh, just about sexuality in general. But then we also have her coming out scene to her mom. Mm-hmm. Very important. Right, which was made very, very specifically to mimic a coming out scene. And I remember watching that one with my mom and feeling like embarrassed, you know, because I knew what was going on and I couldn't really explain it. And it wasn't like queerness was not something that we talked about ever in our household. And so I remember being able to identify that even when I was much younger and didn't really have the words or the framework to understand any of this. 
So it was very well done for what it was. So what I'm trying to get to also is faith, her relationship with faith. Oh, oh, I love this. Again, when I was watching this many, many years ago, I didn't understand why their relationship mattered to me so much, but it really did. <laughs> oh, the queer coding is iconic, perhaps problematic still. Um, yes. There is something um, innate to the creation, the characterization of the Slayer, especially once we meet Faith, which is designed to be Buffy's shadow self. Yes. Like the path not taken. Um, there is something that it's always been woven into the representation of Buffy as the Slayer, that it's always been kind of queer, which I always thought was really, really important. I don't know if we're going to be, if you guys even want to, touch on the comics but season eight of the comics we got Buffy and Sansu which was eh, but they tried I never actually read the comics so I can't really comment um all you need to know is that Buffy gets into a relationship with a up-and-coming potential full slayer named Satsu it exists across, I think, maybe only two comic books in season eight. But what's really interesting is um, they actually brought in one of the writers that wrote through season six and seven, who himself is also queer, to consult on it. And it was actually kind of really nice because it almost paints Buffy rather than being... It, it, it doesn't ask the question whether Buffy is bi, straight, or queer. Rather, it's just... It just is. Uh, it was probably, to me, very important as a woman, as someone who identifies as bi, uh, just to see it not be this big thing. Just being. <laughs> Sometimes that's nice. Just existing. <laughs> yeah, and it did not have to have like all these, you know, labels. Like, it was like very, very important. Something I've harped on Supernatural and I always say like I want to know more of is hearing those kind of things of like, yes, we brought on a established writer who can better connect to the source material given their personal experiences because we wanted the expert opinions and a realistic view. Like, even if it wasn't the most perfect example of it, they at least did it and pulled through and made something good. Good for them. I believe the name is Ryan Greenberg. He's the one who's responsible for uh, a lot of the really good pieces of writing that came out of Andrew in season seven. I do believe he wrote Storyteller. I'd have to double check, don't quote me, but I can correct. But that's also very important because they did, he was one of the youngest writers to join the team. He joined the team in season six. Uh, he actually was the guy who had to write um, Smashed, the episode where Buffy and Spike first have sex and bring the house down. Uh, and he was very young at the time, and he's gone on to do some incredible work, and we love him. Obviously, you know, there's the elf in the room, too, if, you know, if we want to talk about uh, representations of queerness that were very, very important. Willow and Tara. Oh, my God, we had Tara on Supernatural, too. I completely forgot about that also. It's true. We had Tara on Supernatural. We did talk about her. Uh, she was a vampire, actually. Lenore. One of the most iconic gay couples in like television that I can think of. Like, well, we know that historically that was the first uh, female kiss on a teen show or a show that was shown during primetime television. Then during the musical episode, well, well, alluded to uh, also first representation of lesbian sexuality on screen in primetime. Buffy has a show dared and had a lot of courage in what they tried to tackle and that translated throughout all of their episodes or most of their episodes at least whereas like i i mean i think everybody knows but like one of my big issues one of my big pet peeves with supernatural is that it doesn't try or it doesn't dare it doesn't push those boundaries in terms of like making their characters evolve so like that's um that's one thing that I can't help but notice in this conversation. Yeah, it feels like, you know, I look back at a moment we discussed on our show, which was the 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 behind the scenes where you mentioned that they were afraid a moment between 
Cass and Dean would be considered too gay. He was sitting on the bed and that you can't do that. That's too gay. Oh, what? <laughs> if that were being done in Buffy in a way where like there was a potential for the scene to be, you know, like miss, even if like they clearly intended it as two straight male characters interacting in a way, they would never go, oh, that seems gay. Let's not do that. They would be like, let it happen. Let's see the response. Let people discuss. Let's have a moment of ambiguity. Uh, let's not put a label on it one way or the other. Let's move on. Ambiguity and and, and like purposeful. Amb- oh, I don't know, because that's one thing that I really dislike about Supernatural. <laughs> the specific ambiguity that they leave, like just because they don't want to try. There's the difference, though. I think the ambiguity, the ambiguity in Supernatural is the we don't want to touch this. So we're just going to ignore it. Whereas Buffy, it's this is ambiguous. Let's leave it that way and celebrate the ambiguity. There is a really valid argument that does exist in especially queer film theory, in which when you get too many related specifically to TV criticism, when you get too many cis dudes in a writer's room, they forget or they neglect to think how things might come across to others and especially in a show like supernatural which disposes of its female characters like dirty tissues they kind of write themselves into a hole literally yes oh god (laughs) i think that's very true because that's i i keep reading a lot of um a lot of academic articles, particularly about the accusations of queer queer baiting that um, have plagued Supernatural from, well, a very long time now. And that's one of the things that is often discussed, right? They're like, well, you know, like, first of all, they just get rid of all their female characters so that the only meaningful emotional connections that happen are between men. And so people who are looking for those meaningful emotional connections are going to see them happening between men. We don't have the space here for efficiency, but you know, just as a mental prompt to the listeners, think about how Buffy and Faith were queer-coded and then think about Supernatural. Goodness. One of the things that, uh, one of the other metaphors that I think is really important for us to touch on, we've kind of touched on it already, but just, for the sake of mentioning it. The town of Sunnydale is also a really important metaphor. So, you know, we have Sunnydale, which is like a typical Californian suburb. Its symbolic and metaphorical significance in the series is tied to the fact that it is located directly above a hellmouth. People are unaware. Spoiler alert, you know, (laughs) just in case, if you haven't seen season one. (laughs) When it's like 27 years old now. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Right. So it's built above a liberal hellmouth, right? Um, And so the town itself becomes really interesting because it's not only just the location or show, but also you have this like level of all the supernaturals kind of occurring underneath and and we're led to believe early on that you know the denizens of the city are unaware then we find out that you know the police know and they're covering it up you know there's that iconic exchange between snyder and one of the police officers in school hard so what do we tell everyone the usual gang on pcp yeah well what do you think they're going to believe <laughs> And then they destroy the high school, which is, you know, its own really very powerful metaphor at the end of season three before they move on to college. Um, The high school being directly, the high school library being directly located above the Hellmouth. And then by the series finale, Buffy all literally have to annihilate the whole town to defeat the first evil. And then that signifies how you have to leave your childhood and past behind in order to moving into adulthood when i think about that too i think about the the representation of suburbia absolutely right and again like the the appearances that are very very important the white picket fences the ladies in heels and then in the background or literally underneath it all there's a lot of other issues that are happening that are not visible through those white picket fences 
Absolutely. School Hard, not only one of my favorite episodes, but an iconic is a great way of showing, you know, again, we have like the school in this town and the parents show up and then it's attacked by vampires and Buffy has to save the day and keep everyone kind of somewhat separated. We also have the mayor as the big bad of season three, right? And so he's he's the mayor of Sunnydale. We find out that he's been around since it was founded and he's got all these machinations going on. Um, you know, likewise, we have the initiative coming in, into Sunnydale again, exploiting the Hellmouth for their own nefarious needs. And then finally, we blow the whole thing up. Sunnydale doesn't exist. And that's when Buffy is able to finally move on. And it requires full annihilation. The setting becomes equally as important in Buffy as, you know, we talk about the importance of the road trip genre in Supernatural. Supernatural plays a lot with liminal spaces. Um, I think you call it interstitial, inter, yeah, interstitial uh, spaces where they're not, you know, they don't have a home base. They live in motels. They live in the car on the road. They're always in between places. And I think that that is true both of like their physical location, but also of their identities because they never really get to who they were meant to be throughout the series, right? Like they always stay in between who they want to be, who they can be, and who they actually are. Whereas Buffy actually gets that chance to to move on from high school to college and then out of Sunnydale. Absolutely. You know, it's one of those things, like, I think watching the show the first time as a kid where you're not really, like, looking for these things or being or realizing them as quickly, like, yeah, cool, she destroys the school and it's perfect timing, she's done. But, like, literally the symbolism of, like, T- this part of your past that like that like it, i mean at the end of the day we all kind of look back at that high school i mean most of us do as like hard, high school when this really hard time in your life that you're like happy to leave behind and for her it's not just walking away from it it's like really shedding that part of herself it becomes so integral to like the evolution of the story and the character that destroying the school seems like it fits so much better than just leaving it this is making me think of that episode where they come back to the school. I think it's uh, Buffy and Willow who come back to the school and Willow says something like, oh, I remember it being bigger. And then Buffy says, well, the whole library is missing. Yeah, that was in season four. Mm-hmm. Yes, there you go. And, it, and then you have the re-return to high school when they re- rebuild it. And then, you know, we have the hottie that is Robin Wood, D.B. Woodside, please. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, I love him. What a story. Sorry, I just like, I, I had a whole flashback to like his mother's story and like, oh man, what a, what a character. We were, we were robbed to not have gotten to see more of him personally. Oh my God. So amazing. I know. I love it. I love it. I love it. Any other metaphors that we haven't touched on? Cause like, I mean, it's so, it's such a rich text. We obviously won't be able to talk about everything, but is there any other like ones that immediately come to mind for the both of you? The only thing that I'll say is that, you know, when I say that Buffy and Dean are are the same character in different font, like, I guess that's kind of what I mean in the sense that they're, they're both juggling conflicting identities and just how, how to me that is quintessentially queer of like showing something to the general population, quote unquote, versus like who you are underneath and, um, only letting a few people in on who that is. Or for Dean, it's it's actually complete like seclusion or reclusion from society in order to be who he is. Let's also not forget the hilarious parallel of both Buffy and Dean have love interests who, who wear trench coats. Okay, I can't go into that. I, so <laughs> it's because I have so, so many thoughts about 1518. I can't say which. Okay. <laughs> I know. I, I, I feel like I'm like tuning into you through Zoom all the way to Montreal. Part of me I is just like, you. here, guys, give me a. <laughs> but then I have to edit this thing. So it wouldn't really work, would it? <laughs> Apologies. Um, but yeah, no, I feel you. I get you. I will send you uh, an email with a rant separately. Uh, but there is one thing that I did want to bring up when we're talking about metaphors. And it was a really fabulous quote from Mark Field in Buffy Miss Morality and Metaphor, which I mentioned at the top, that I just think is so mm. chef's kiss. 
So he argues, quote, the most important metaphor in Buffy is Buffy herself. She is the hero of the show. We, the audience, are supposed to identify with her. Buffy is us, and we are her. That's what I call the central metaphor of the show. When Buffy faces a dilemma, we learn from her experience because we are, in some sense, her, end quote. Well, I mean, there's that, I mean, that is quite literally represented in, in season seven with the slayers, the, the potential slayers, right? You know, by the time we read season seven, we really see the core themes of Buffy kind of come to the fore. So it's about Buffy's journey to self-acceptance, coming to her power, and then learning how to share that power with others. And I think that's what I think Buffy's legacy will always be remembered for. And that's why, circling back to what you said earlier, Marie, but like how when you watch Buffy, like you feel kind of empowered, you feel like happy. Like it is about coming to your power, regardless of your gender, your where you identify. Uh, I think, you know, it's all very like to the core of, of what makes Buffy have such an incredible legacy and why so many new generations are discovering it and loving it the same way that we do. And there's also something about how she is able to carve out who she wants to be. Because there's, again, you know, I'm there's Joyce as an example, but they're very clearly there as enforcers of specific uh, demands to conform to expectations. I think if she wasn't the Slayer, she might fall for something like that, that having that depth of experience and like having that dual or that duality or that conflict within her kind of allows her to have that um, conversation, that dialogue inside of her to decide how she wants to act, how she wants her behavior to reflect her values. And like, I love that. I love that about her. I feel like there's a part of Buffy and I think you both brought it up as there's like a, no matter who you are, you can find yourself in Buffy. And that's one of the things she does so well is she's able to be this very othered character in the sense that she others herself by being the slayer unintentionally, but can still, she's not like, I feel like in any other show, your typical like, oh, I'm different, but I'm so cool outside of school. In school, I have to be a nerd or a loser. She isn't. Like, yeah, she's a bit of an oddball. She's caught skipping class here and there, and she doesn't have the best grades, but she's by no means, like, a dropout or a loser in school. Like, she's still one of the cheerleaders. She's still good in school. She still has a good connection with a lot of teachers, with the exception of a certain principal. That it's that usually a viewer who is, that's, I, I think, such a typical thing you see in yourself in those kind of coming of age stories is like, Oh, I'm like that. I'm different. I'm the weird one, but look at that. I can be the best. My best self too is what draws you into Buffy as a character. We have to remember that Buffy was originally designed to be a feminist parable, right? All the things that for me personally resonate the most for the show is, you know, this idea of, Buffy working towards self-acceptance, the way the show does actively, textually and subtextually critique conformity, uh, the way that Buffy is also able to not only just be a badass warrior, she's also able to be a girly girl and, you know, wearing high heels or running in a cemetery, cemetery logistically impossible aside. Truly her best superpower. Yes. <laughs> she's able to be high femme. And then she's also, in another episode, able to wear her overalls of shame. And we get a very broad spectrum of representation of, of a feminine subject. You know, and she becomes, she, you know, season six. Love, love it. Hate it. Love it you know, the big bad is growing up in depression. She becomes not likable. And can I just say how, for me as a female viewer and as a, you know, consumer of cinema and media, um, back to what you were saying earlier, Marie, about like it taking risks. One of my uh, 
colleagues, I guess, in my PhD cohort is doing her dissertation on unlikable female characters in YA novels. Um, so we've, yeah, so we've literally just started. So she, she doesn't, you know, like we're all just starting, but it's, it's very true. Buffy is unlikable in season six. And yet I think that that's probably when I loved her the most. She's the most human as an anti-hero. Mm-hmm. Um, because otherwise, you know, you have the chosen one narrative, right? Which is supposed to elevate her above others. But it's in those moments where we can see our heroine that we've been following, who's been so strong, have to tackle with the issues that we do on a daily basis that really reinforces the humanism of the series. That's so true, because the moment that she starts being very righteous that's that's when I begin to have issues because I'm like, well, what about this? And I'm thinking specifically about the episode where Anya kills like the entire uh, fraternity. Selfless. Yes, there you go. And then Buffy uh, comes in to kill her. Now, I'm not going to talk about Xander in that episode because I find that Xander sometimes gets to the right conclusion through the wrong way. And I think that that's exactly what happens in this He's episode. He's a classic white cis dude. He's constantly failing upwards. It's okay. We know that he was the proxy for Whedon. He's highly problematic. Leaving that aside, you know, and, and that's where, and I'm not saying that this was badly written or anything, but I know that I would have liked to see a bit more of a moral quandary there. Because, and, and that we see a lot in Supernatural, the moral quandary of, do I, do I hurt or do I kill this monster, this person who has done a bad thing, but who I love? Whereas in that episode with Buffy and Anya, there's, it's not there. It's not present. Like, she's like, oh no, I'm coming here to kill you with like her beautiful wedding hair that she did because, you know, she had, she was just flying home from having her wedding to Freddie Prince Jr. And she doesn't think twice about it. And I'm like, but she's your friend. Like, does that not matter? So anyway. Yeah, but the fact that it doesn't come up or the fact that it it's so jarring that she wouldn't question it, I think lends to the credence of that season and kind of that level of like, you know, morality and like the the lack thereof almost or like the high morality blinding you from like actual good and wrong. Mm -hmm. And so one of the parallels that, you know, that we kind of touched on earlier that I feel is maybe worthwhile talking about here, you guys let me know what you think, is um, the importance that Buffy put, or the Buffy verse in general, I guess, if you want to even go there, uh, puts on questions of destiny versus free will. And this is a thread that we also see in Supernatural and we'll continue to see for the next I have to think about how to word my answer just with regards to seasons one through five. (laughs) I think the thing with Buffy is that as much as there is this idea of destiny, when it comes to who you are, I don't think there's this idea of destiny when it comes to the actions that you're going to take. So like, there's always room for how you choose to express the self that you are destined to be. Whereas I feel like in Supernatural, the the message isn't as, and again, I hate to say this, but isn't as sophisticated, where like you have God who writes a story, who decides what happens. And uh, in, you know, seasons one through five, quote unquote, God is dead or God is gone, like no matter how we want to look at it the destiny in supernatural is very much like this is the script stick to the script. Whereas Buffy is like, you're the slayer. What you do with that is up to you, but you are the slayer deal with it. Although there are attempts to really regulate her behavior though. When, especially when it comes to the, Oh shoot. (laughs) The council. Sorry. The watchers council. I thought about that. I was like the men of letters. I'm like, no (laughs) wrong show. The ultimate symbol of the patriarchy, the watchers council. The watchers council. A bunch of old British white cis dudes telling a little girl what to do with her powers. Oof, that episode. Hmm. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. The one where they take her powers away. I'm assuming. Yeah. 
that is a, a a rough episode to watch for its obvious intense, but then when you really think about it we're even more, it's like really fucked up. It's the ultimate casting of Buffy as the final girl. If she was always designed to transgress the tropes of the final girl, that was the one instance where they put her directly in that role. And it was true horror. It was really an effective episode. It was true horror. You're right. It, again, weirdly, as I brought up way earlier, it's like bringing in a different genre that they usually don't do. And in this case, it's the more true horror genre of like the cliche final girl that makes it more effective because it's the first time that they're taking that specific piece of the horror genre and using it. And you're like, oh, you normally subvert this and you're not subverting it now. You're making it real. What the crap? But she still is the final girl because she still uses her mind and the resources available rather than her strength. There is also something that was this question of, of destiny versus free will that I think is really key to uh, what Drew and Marie, you were just saying not too long ago uh, about how Buffy maybe did a little bit more sophisticatedly. Um, and I think that's because, you know, I just want to flag the kind of core philosophy, one of the core philosophies that inform the world building and, and the way the narrative operates in Buffy, which is uh, Whedon, uh, you know, so while they put a lot of emphasis on this question between destiny and free will, one of the things I find really interesting is that it's all it's the show itself is decidedly agnostic in its approach to it so like there's no capital g god there's this lovely exchange in season seven conversations with dead people where buffy's fighting a vampire and he's like you know oh my god well not your god because i defy him, him and all of his work any news on that and buffy replies eh, you know nothing solid <laughs> it's amazing how much they get through in that like joke line but like it really does define like oh yeah that is really kind of the way the series does this we then will use uh judeo-christian ethnography that it's rooted in vampire lore and vampire fiction but he does it you know but he's more willing to kind of borrow these icons and symbols just as like as as mythology general because he himself has gone on the record various times stating that he is an atheist and an absurdist, which I think is really interesting. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I'm a little intrigued. So absurdism is a branch of existentialist philosophy. So existentialism uh, asserts that the universe is hostile and indifferent to you. Uh, there's no purpose or intrinsic meaning in existence, but we as individuals can create meaning through choice. Um, absurdism uh, shares many of the same ideas as existentialism um, in the sense that it asserts there's no intrinsic meaning to life or the universe, but that it is an essential part of, of the human condition to seek meaning and purpose regardless. Uh, French philosopher Albert Camus argues that the dissonance between the meaninglessness of the universe and her desire for meaning is in itself absurd, which is where absurdism gets its name. I was going to ask where the name came from because I wasn't making the connection. That makes sense. Took me a little bit, but, you know. We get there eventually. That's the thing about philosophy. <laughs> it's always in a hermeneutic loop, see? Always. Uh, so in the Buffyverse, right, our Buffy as our protagonist has to reconcile her experience in a hostile and different universe to find meaning and purpose through personal agency and choice. And so this is why choice and that desire to keep and that, that whole adage of like, keep keeping fighting is so important. And so that really is at the core of the way it's constructed. And I think that's something that we have yet to see fully express itself in supernatural as of yet. You know, there's an attempt at, at, verbalizing this through Dean's character, you know, like I, 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 I'm thinking about a specific quote where he's saying something like, um, I can still, I don't think he says make my own choices, but I can still, you know, like, he's like, I'm, I'm just going to keep going. I'm, I'm just going to keep going. And, and it's not, you know, it gets, 
the verbiage of it gets like very specific in later seasons, but for now, that's kind of where we are. I'm just going to keep fighting. And I think that perhaps this is why season six is so poignant because she no longer has control. She no longer has agency. Everything that is happening is happening beyond her control uh, between Joyce's death, uh, her the bills that are piling up. She's working within a structure that, uh, like a, a structured society that doesn't allow her to do the things that she would want to do through her personal agency. And so I think that that's what creates also, or that helps kind of like dig her into that pit of despair um, through through the season. Mm -hmm. Uh, If anyone wants to, if any of the listeners or anyone wants to learn a little bit more about uh, how these questions of existentialism and absurdism manifest themselves in Buffy, I cannot recommend enough Passion of the Nerds YouTube channel and his Buffy guide. Uh, He definitely dives into Albert Camus, existentialism, absurdism in Buffy in, in such a perfect way. I'm definitely going to go uh, have a look at that because I feel like there there could be some stuff to kind of, you know, just cherry pick when it comes to Supernatural. Because I think they do try also to do things like that. Again, I'm not too sure with how much success, but they definitely try. I never really considered the the destiny versus free will views in Buffy, but now talking about how obvious they are, I can't put my finger on why it feels so different in the two shows part of me is like supernatural is like so it's so much more central to the series whereas buffy is more of like an underlying like theme and i think that's what does it and it makes buffy do it up till now in a much lighter way it's a lot like more hands-off with it but Mm -hmm, it kind of always mm -hmm. kind of rears up again but i also think that buffy offers a resolution to that whereas supernatural does not and never will Uh, you know Buffy at the end offers a resolution to this question I think that's why it feels so much more satisfying and it feels like you know the writer's room kind of took position with that whereas Supernatural just leaves us with more questions like it leaves us without the comfort of knowing a lot I if I may share just very quickly um uh, I came across a very interesting quote from Eric Kripke uh, from an interview at Comic-Con in 2009 that was right before the season five premiere of Supernatural. And he talks about his worldview and how it informs this question of, of, of destiny, fate, that may elucidate something for us. So Kripke goes on to say, quote, for me, the story is about can the strength of family overcome destiny and fate and can family save the world? He goes on to say, if I had a worldview and I don't know if I do, but if I did one that's intensely, it's one that's intensely humanistic. That worldview is that the only thing that matters is family and personal connection. That's the only thing that gives life meaning religion and gods and belief for me it all comes down to your brother your brother might be your brother in your family it might be a guy next to you in the foxhole it's about human connections end quote the big focus here is the fact that Kripke mentions not having a particular worldview and, and if he did he kind of then goes ahead and describes it and it really feels like though the show is much more central on the idea of fate versus or destiny versus free will this seems to point that like he's really trying to paint the picture of like no matter like, he he's basically saying like but my end result is it's the choices you make along the way that are more important and you can overcome uh your destiny because you find the people that give you the power you need and you make your connections and then ties into found family so as much as he doesn't claim to have a worldview he seems to have one here and in Supernatural, he is very much writing characters who are basically facing a worldview that he doesn't see eye to eye with. It also explains why, you know, you know, for if we're doing the comparisons of apple and oranges, you know, they worldviews, the lens through which uh, our heroes move through their respective sandboxes is so different. 
you know, because it all, for Kripke, it all comes down to family, to, to brotherhood, to those personal connections. Buffy as well, but we have this cloak, but we have it perhaps more fleshed and woven out into this kind of larger question uh, of choice and free will. So like maybe it's just that tension because, you know, I did, you know, in my, I did bring up in my voicemail about how, you know, if high school is hell for Buffy, family is hell. So there's also this tension, I think, in Kripke's work or oeuvre as a showrunner for like the first five seasons that is kind of in conflict with itself. Plus, I kind of just want to give the man a hug because like he always does stuff about daddy issues. I want to know who hurt him. Well, I think we know who. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm like, well... So if the crux of Supernatural, especially the first five season, is family, and again, I find that interesting because as much as Supernatural has really tried or has had moments where it talks about found family in very profound ways, it sometimes fails to actually recognize found family as family uh, when it matters. I mean, we just saw... Not too long ago, Joe and Ellen die, right? Two, two of the very few women on the show dying, leaving only Bobby and Sam and Cass, you know, like as their allies. And that's just something that we're going to see over and over and over again. This idea of like family being a very specific kind of people. Whereas I think that Buffy is a bit more liberal when it comes to defining those connections. I think that, you know, he talks about, uh, Kripke talks about human connection, but I think what he means is really personal connections and not social connections, because I refuse to believe that the boys are socially connected. They're not, they're not socially connected. They have personal connections, but they're not connected to a wider social net, whereas Buffy is. Well, absolutely. Immediately season, you know, pilot episode, we get the establishment of the Scooby gang um, trying to keep it spoiler free, but we don't get a larger entourage of, you know, an ensemble cast around the boys until later, until it passes hands to another showrunner. It is a challenging thing. You know, I definitely did want to talk about fan family, but I found it a bit challenging to do so without spoilers but also with Buffy you have Buffy as kind of the chosen one with Supernatural you have the brothers you do have Sam as a chosen one indeed Mm -hmm. but the dynamic is just a skosh different Mm -hmm. I feel like you know the main character in in Buffy is Buffy but I think the main character in Supernatural especially the first five season is the relationship between the brothers Beautifully put. Bravo. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Um, What that does, though, is it allows Buffy's relationship with her found family, the Scoobies, to develop a lot more naturally because it isn't under a microscope. And it's also not competing with another, like, quote unquote, more important relationship because that's what ends up happening or that's how other relationships are seen later on right they're seen as competing with that relationship between the brothers every relationship we've seen in supernatural thus far with probably the only exception being dean and Cass, has been oh there's someone else in the picture we're fighting now because that's what brothers do they use the two brothers and they pit them against each other constantly within the story right to create tension rather than actually existing with their relationships to others And even in the moments, you know, when we do get really important moments with Bobby, for example, uh, and there is, there might be some friction, there might be some tension, that gets smoothed over much faster while we have to listen to the boys gripe and bitch at each other, you know, for however long, right? Yeah, for seasons sometimes. (laughs) I hate using the apples and oranges thing again, you know, but we can see how... You know, and this is really what I was trying to kind of get at earlier is this idea that Buffy as a progenitor for Supernatural 
kind of opened up a televisual space for that story to exist and to exist for so long. To put it a different way, if Buffy hadn't been as successful as it had been, or if Buffy hadn't existed, audiences would not have been ready for Supernatural, or at least not receptive to it at all. Mm-hmm. No, Buffy truly opened the door to the to to the monster of the week outside of the like cultishness of something like an X-Files. Absolutely. Buffy brought monster of the week to the general family dinner audience. And I think that that's also visible. I keep coming back to that quote because it it lives rent free in my mind, but this idea that Kripke did not want to make another Buffy. I think when you're trying so hard to differentiate yourself from something that has clearly inspired you, it's going to take you in some directions that are a little bit unpredictable because you're not you're not going in with a specific vision of like what you want to be. You're going in with a vision of what you don't want to be too much like. That creates a dissonance, right, in the final product. Whedon said, I have to triple check my sources on this, so I apologize. But he said early on in the show's run, I think this was after season two aired. So end of... 2000 uh sorry 1998 maybe he said that you know originally you know they started with the monster of the week format blah 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 but by the time they were done season two and i'm paraphrasing here that much to his surprise realized that people weren't tuning in for the monster of the week but it was about the characters the interpersonal relationships the the drama the romance the you know all of that so it was really about again, humanizing the horror genre, you know, bringing that humanity back into it and playing with those tropes. And so, you know, likewise, Kripke, same thing, you know, the monster as metaphor for him becomes a tool to kind of tease out uh, character development, uh, tease out different forms of interpersonal conflict. And 15 seasons is nothing to sneeze at. And I think that's based on audiences' desire to see our two main characters grow and evolve. Simon, thank you so much for spending time with us today and having like this amazing conversation with us. Can you tell us where we can find you on social media? Absolutely. So I'm not terribly active on social media. But I can be found on the Caring Wayward Discord <laughs> at Kel Fiona. Uh, also, bonus points for anyone who can catches the Buffy reference in my Discord handle. Any guesses? Nothing for Fiona comes to mind with Buffy. I pulled it from uh, season four episode Wild at Heart when Buffy's talking about Veruca, the the female werewolf dancing on stage, uh, dancing, singing on stage, and Buffy turns around to Will and goes like, "Yeah, she's Kel Fiona. Color me bored." Oh, so it's wow. a Fiona Apple reference. It's a slight, you know, indie, indie fem rock. That is amazing. I love this. And it has always lived rent free in my head. So, of course, the minute I had an excuse to make a handle with it, I did. <laughs> I love everything about this. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, on that note, you can also find us on TikTok, Twitter, Hive, Instagram, and YouTube at Carrying Wayward. And you become a patron, much like Simone here, or a supporter by heading to carryingwayward.com. And as always, carry on our wayward friends. Mwah, mwah. Oh, Jesus oh. Christ. Okay, where are my notes? Where are my notes? Where are my notes? Uh, okay.